podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Charles Tirrett, known and loved for their proper shirts, sharp tailoring and slick separates. They've added smart casual pieces, one of which I'm wearing now for our YouTube audience, and refined loungewear to their collection, designed to take you from formal to casual spaces throughout the day. For the month of June, we're offering our listeners 20% off at Charles Tirrett by using the code WISDOMPOD online or quoting the offer code in store. England have won a test match after six defeats and three draws in their last nine test matches. England kickstart the Brendan McCullum, Ben Stokes era with a victory, but not one without a few hiccups along the way. I'm Yaz Rana and with me this morning is the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and pod debutant Tim Wigmore from The Telegraph. Great to have you on. Tim, we've got two episodes this week. On this one, we'll be focusing more on the Laws Test Match, whilst on Thursday, we'll spend more time covering all the other stuff that's happening in both the World and County Games. Tim, what did you make, first of all, of Ben Stokes' first test as captain? Was there anything noticeably different about this England team on the field with the change of skipper? Yeah, I mean, for me, almost the biggest was England's fielding was so, so much sharper, both uh, the slip catching, the kind of energy... Um, and sort of intend the field and also the the run outs we saw th- three three direct hits which England have been very bad at and obviously one of those uh, from Ollie Pope led to the really really crucial wicket of Holland Agronome in the over that probably that, that, that turned the game yeah the sort of attitude was was actually quite noticeably different it was much more kind of positive much more let's go for everything you even see with with the best of catch right right at the start and that was actually one that he could have left to Zach Ward he actually had both guys who were going for it and yeah, occasionally that might create a problem, but you'd rather have both guys going for it than no one going for it, as we've actually sometimes seen, seen in the past. So that was, yeah, some positive signs. And actually, we talk about so much about England's batting and, and bowling and the improvements they need to make, but actually fielding is, is probably one that they can sort out um, in, in a quicker way. And actually, yeah, so from 2018 till until this test, test match, um, England's slip catching, I think, was the 10th worst in, in the world. Um, that's a really, really big issue, and some positive signs they're sorting that out. Even we see the, the slip cord and the, the yeah, catch was were actually standing noticeably. Uh, they were they were tighter to each other. There wasn't such a big gap between keeper and, and first slip. So actually, kind of some technical changes and a kind of attitude intensity change as well. And no holes in the slip cord and three catches in the slip straight away on on day one. Joe, I thought the man management was quite notable at the end of the test match. Um, Stokes called Ben Folks the the best wicketkeeper in the world. So he's really bigging up players who are potentially either new to the team or fringe players at the moment. He gave Matt Parkinson every opportunity to get his first test wicket, allowing him to bowl at the tail and use pots like someone who's played 35 test matches. Yeah, and that's reflective of, of Ben Stokes' personality in general. But I think that's also very much from the Brendan McCullum playbook. Um, he would talk up his players... Um, to the extent that they started to believe they were players that they probably weren't originally with New Zealand. Um, lots of examples of players with modest first-class records who really stepped up under McCullum's leadership. And I think that's what you see coming through there. It's, it's kind of, it sounds a bit pathetic, but it's kind of making fa- players feel special. And, you know, these are prime sportsmen. They're obviously, they should be confident and a lot of them are fairly ego-driven, but that doesn't mean they're not fragile like the rest of us as well. Um, and I, I think perhaps we haven't, necessarily seen that as being a bit of a nervousness um 
the flip side is obviously if you say those things and then it goes horribly wrong, you can look like a bit of a plonker. Um, but they're willing to kind of stick their neck on the line and, and, and say these things and, and hope they come off. And, you know, folks, I thought halfway through that test, I thought folks is in trouble here. Listening to commentary on Sky, listening to commentary on TMS, the energy was very much folks can't bat with this tail. The way he bats is not going to be conducive to the, the makeup of this side. Vaughan was even suggesting that folks should bat five, even though he's keeping wicket and Besto comes in at seven. Harry Brook, we know, is banging down the door. So for folks to bat the way he did, particularly on Sunday, Saturday, I thought he looked a little bit nervous. And, and fair enough, Root was going nicely, so he just let Root do it. But it felt like it was the Root show with folks clinging in there. Uh, on Sunday, I thought that was a that was just a proper partnership between two really good players playing unbelievably well. And um, that should give folks a lot of confidence going forward, I think. Mm. Don't want to get too excited by a 32 not out, but... I think the the points that Sky and TMS were making still stand. Folks scored those runs with um, with Root at the other end. Um, on day two, I arrived genuinely thinking that Stuart Broad was England's best bet of scoring some runs and getting a proper lead because of the way folks bats and you know, thought Broad could score a quick twenty or thirty. Tim, you you suggested that you know, folks could be like England's England's BJ Watling, and I was looking at BJ Watling's best innings in Test cricket, most of his hundreds. He's not batting with a tail in, in basically any of them. They're either hundreds with someone in the middle order or with a very good all rounder at seven or eight behind him so there still is that like dilemma about how to get the best out of folks with the with the current dynamic of the team yeah absolutely I mean I think the situation for him it was a difficult situation second things but it was also perfect in that he could bat exactly as he does for Surrey when he, when he bats at number five but the, the Watling thing New Zealand I mean McCollum I think one point said he was uh, his favorite cricketer um, so that it does which is interesting for folks because it shows to him that yeah all the talk of Butler or Basso keeping it and batting at seven M- McCollum that, that which fits in with the kind of the character of a McCullum team, but McCullum actually is not quite as simple as that. So, folks' is, best chance of being a success for England and playing a lot of test matches is, is to be himself because his his game is not to be a best or a butler. But the the great difficulty will be England's tail is is really looking as bad as it's been almost since 1999 at the moment and that, that famous test against New Zealand. Um, so how folks finds a way. To, either to deal with or if England actually improve their tail. You know, Folks' style, it's a bit of a sense that Folks has been a little bit out of time and just kind of unlucky in the test team. You know, if you if you, the team where you have two of, say, Chris Wokes, Sam Carroll and Don Bass at, at number eight and nine, that suits Folks' approach very, very well. Um, so I guess that the next step for him will be finding a way to, to bat with the tail and to manipulate manipulate the strike, which he didn't really even try to do. I think in the first innings, I think he took single off the second ball to expose and you know that, that kind of thing um but, I mean, some of that's a yeah. confidence thing as well though right once you get into that role i'm not sure he even felt comfortable like taking the strike because he was just getting the runs that he he could whereas i think when he's filled that role for a few test matches he will be like well no, this is my role i am actually going to make sure i protect this weak tail and uh and i also think i think there is an adaptability to game to folks game that we haven't really mm. seen and again i think that comes down to just familiarity of playing test cricket it's his first home test it's ridiculous um but in his first series in sri lanka he played some aggressive shots there was an innings of i can't remember if it's a half century or 40 odd where he came out hit a couple of sixes he has got that in his locker it's just not not his natural way to play but i think he is more adaptable than than perhaps we've given him credit for but it is a fascinating example because there's so often we've seen in England, you know, Ollie Pope batting three is another example of this, where 
it's very, very challenging for players to bat higher up for England than they do for their counties. And folks actually at seven is the first real example I can think of where it's actually probably harder for him to be batting lower down for England yeah. than higher up for his county. Yeah, definitely, definitely. One thing that I think we'll just learn more about over the next few weeks and across the summer is how that McCullum-Stokes dynamic will work. At the end of play yesterday, Stokes said something quite interesting about how on the third evening, uh, McCullum was suggesting if we lose another wicket here, when folks came in, that they'd promote Broad from nine to eight and hope that Broad would give it a swing, score 20, 30 quick runs, and that could make a big difference. Which is interesting in itself because Broad hasn't got any runs in the last year and a bit and has batted eight only once in the last four years. But I thought the most interesting thing about that was actually that McCullum was making that call and Stokes said, oh, Brendan was making that decision and we were going to do that. And that is not necessarily how coaches operate in international cricket. At least that's not what we've been used to with Chris Silverwood and, and Trevor Bayliss before that, I think. Certainly with Silverwood and Bayliss, uh, I think other coaches around the world would have more input. I think Justin Langer, for instance, would have probably had his had his say in that in that kind of decision-making scenario. I mean, <laughs> McCullum's got to make some decisions. Otherwise, there's not much point in having him there. Uh, Stokes made couple of key ones before McCullum even got appointed in that he said I'm batting six and Root's batting four um you know after one test that's looking quite smart but um England aren't gonna get far with a top three that can't make any runs I mean at 60 odd for four I gave them no chance really and it was Root's brilliance that got them over the line we are used to Root doing it pretty much every time but he can't do it every single time so that is still a big question mark I think um, and it'll be interesting to see how long, if the top three continue to struggle, how long McCullum lets that play out. If he just says, Stokes, Root, you back where you want to, or whether he decides to intervene. Um, and that is going to be an interesting kind of power dynamic between those two. We had a great question from a listener who will remain nameless on day two, I think, who basically said, should we just pack it all in and relegate England to associate status? This isn't going very well. Tim, Theo asked, what will McCullum have learnt about this England team that he didn't already know? This is the kind of thing, for all the kind of positivity and sense of, you know, England have stopped stopped the rut and everything, they've ultimately had a test where they've been very indebted to Joe Root, Ben Stokes, James Anderson, Stuart Broad. Yeah. These are these are names we've we've heard before. <laughs> and 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 uh these are all names that actually played, of course, against McCullum in that famous store set in 20, 2015, seven years ago. And um I suppose the concern is that the younger batsmen haven't have yet to sort of get to the stage of taking on that that mantle. Um although I mean the bowling from Matthew Potts was a genuine positive and that's that was a really that was a really good sign for England. He he did look like a good good third seamer. The only Thing about pots, and we see this again and again um, with England bowlers who are coming in. Uh, Sakib Mahmood is another example. Um, you see guys who have basically bowl with a new ball for their counties because they're their best best quick bowls as, as you'd expect, and then they're taking on a, a different role um, for England. You know, one of the things that I think is really important is getting players to replicate their their roles more for England, and and this applies to bowls actually as much as batsmen. So could England actually? get to the stage. England, I don't really think England are ever going to have a shortage of new ball bowls in England. So could England actually be identifying a few bowls that they could do the job of first and second change for England actually trying to get them to do that job for their counties? You know, it, it's a harder job, obviously, but it's actually one where they can probably add more value to the England team. It's interesting that Stokes said he he was actually quite aware of that with Potts and he was very conscious to try and get him into the attack early, which, which it obviously worked well and this was a new ball wicket. But yeah, England probably need to ultimately move away from having an attack with 
basically four, four new ball bowlers. And I guess we saw the worst of that probably in Adelaide when we had Anderson, Broad, Chris Wokes and, and, and Craig Overton, all four bowlers who would always hit the new ball in county mm. cricket. Joe, what did you make of Potts' debut? Four for 13 uh, in the first innings were the best figures by an England debutant since Toby Rowland-Jones took five at the Oval five years ago. I thought it was massively impressive. Yeah, I, that first morning was really interesting. I think we'd spoken on the pod before about having concerns that Anderson and Bro- it could all go quite wrong for them that first test and that actually there was a huge amount of pressure on their shoulders given the fact they'd both been dropped and, and, and you know, kicked up a fuss about it. Um. But actually, very quickly, it was like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, this was going to happen. Of course, Anderson and Broad were going to take early wickets. But then you're like, what comes next? Is this where it falls away? Leach, obviously, by that point was already off the poor old Leach, by the way. I mean, honestly, how much bad luck can one guy have? He was obviously off the field, concussed. um, And then you've got Stokes, who we, we didn't want him to bowl too many overs. So even at that stage with England massively on top, there was a lot of responsibility on Potts' shoulders to keep it going. And... He was probably the pick of the bowlers. He pro- I thought overall he probably bowled better than Anderson, who went for a few when he came back for his uh, second spell or third spell. Uh, and there's something about... I mean, he bowled brilliantly. He bowled attacking lines. I mean, in his post-match interview, he talked about... He said, uh, as a group, we talked about taking wickets, which, you know, sounds like a blindingly obvious thing to say. <laughs> but obviously what... It, what I think he means is they're bowling fuller, more attacking lengths, which, you know, you don't have to extrapolate too much from that to think back to what Anderson and Broad were bowling in Australia and the issues that Root had with them. So they were bowling full. And and we know, you've talked about this, Potts takes a lot of his wickets, bowled LBW, he bowls straight. Uh, and yeah, I thought he was an absolute breath of fresh air in every sense. I loved his interview at the end of the day with Sky as well. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of, not quite as kind of crazy, but there's a bit of Mark Wood in there as well. Just that, just lovely personality, just happy to chat. Um, and I think, you know, Durham have found us another one. Mm. Um, I thought I thought he like, looked to really relish the occasion and really relish the challenge of playing test cricket. I mean, taking the wicket of Kane Williamson in your first over helps and, and get him out of twice game as well. Twice, also twice also twice helps. Balls, I think. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who've not seen him bowl in county cricket, I think might have just looked at the speed gun and go, oh, another one who bowls low 80s. But I think he's quite different to a lot of the bowlers England have produced recently in that he's not he's not reliant on the ball swinging as such. He, a lot of it was seam nibbling it in both directions and as you said, like just bowling quite straight. I thought I thought it was quite a lot like Scott Boland actually. This kind of like this guy with a quite a strong frame who hits the pitch really hard, tries to extract everything that you can possibly get from the pitch and just, you know, keeps it quite simple. If you just keep aiming at fourth stump and if the ball moves in one direction or the other, you're going to take quite a few wickets. And the thing he did really well and actually led to the wicket of Tom Bloods on the first innings, he changed uh, his, his release point on the crease. And so the reason that Blondell gets out leaving in the first innings is because um, he thinks it's coming. He's, he's been lining up for a, a ball release from a little bit close to the stumps and then uh, Potts goes a little bit wider and create, creates a new angle. And that's a really that's a really smart thing. You see, and it's similar to what you see with, with Pat Cummins, he does that. And that's a great thing you can you can master because you can create a new angle and it works anywhere it will work in in pakistan or whatever because you're not really right on the pitch you'll generate the angle the angle yourself um there's was, there was a, a, a lot to like in pots i think he yeah it's static he's probably not as quick as england would ideally like and so on but he's a very skillful bowler and um yeah his, his line his line was good um and yeah england he clearly has his champion he clearly he relished the occasion that was, that was very obvious and that's a really really positive sign as well so you can kind of add him to the list i mean I don't know where he'd before this test he's probably playing his 12th choice team yeah. but he's, he's he's um 
probably yeah gone up a fair few places after that performance yeah it's, it's an incredible rise at the start of last summer he wasn't even in the Durham squad let alone team for the first game of the season but now you look at it bowling well on debut loads of guys out injured he touch wood he stays fit he could get a decent run in the side here well touch wood he stays fit is key and, mm. and England have got some decisions to make as this summer unfolds the test matches as always come thick and fast um, not so long ago we were saying that Anderson abroad couldn't play in the same <laughs> team or they couldn't play two, they couldn't play two tests in a row well now they're going to have to seemingly play every test yeah. match because no one else is fit Potts we know has bowled a lot of overs for Durham already this year on, on some flat pitches put 110% into it We've got to be really careful not to break him as well. And but then you, this is the con. You can't. You can't. Obviously, I'm not suggesting he doesn't play next week. Obviously, he does. But then you have to think: Does he play the next one? Or I guess it depends partly on who's coming back. I don't know what the situation with Wokes is. I don't know. If there's an update on his fitness. Um, and there's obviously Overton waiting in the wings. But there's not. There aren't fast bowlers who are fit. Who you're like. Let's get him in. He's ready to go. I know Ollie Stone's playing again for Warwickshire this week, but he, he won't play Test cricket this summer. No, he's a no. He's a long, long way from that. I mean, it would certainly be irresponsible to try and to push him that far. Mm. But we'll um, just hope he stays stays fit and healthy. He has already had from the interview you did with him previously. He's sort of I don't know. This is encouraging, but he's he talked about <laughs> he had in, injuries earlier, and now his body is he thinks is much more ready for the rigours yeah. of, of bowling fast. So, so that is at least one encouraging step. I'm aware we're very guilty of doing this on the show, that when Joe Root scores 100 in an England win, or we just don't mention it because it's this so quite routine. A good one. This, this was really, this really was really up there. England were 69 before chasing 277 with this long tail, ended up being in their top 15 chases of all time. Their second highest at Lords, only second by a couple of runs. It's 26th Test 100, and he became the second Englishman to reach 10,000 Test runs at exactly the same age as Alistair Cook when he reached the milestone uh, six years ago. Nine Test 100s in 18 months. That's the same number of 100s that Jonathan Trott scored across the entirety of his career, the same number as Stephen Fleming scored over the entirety over his career. Rob asked, is this victory just going to paper over the cracks, i.e. the top order apart from Root still can't score any runs? Yep. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> um... Yeah, no, it, it does. It's 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 so glaringly obvious. It's barely worth talking about to an extent. It's just a continuation of the same problem, um, and that's why a lot of people still think he should be batting three. Uh, even that would still be papering over the cracks because you still got to find someone who's going to bat four. I mean, they've obviously they've backed Pope, and they need to give him some time in that role. But you know, the the jury's still very much out on whether he can he can do that role in the long term. Um, I thought the whole. The, the Roots test match was quite a moving thing actually and seeing he spoke afterwards he felt quite emotional coming out getting a really good reception on, on day one from the Lords crowd um, and I thought he spoke really well on Sky afterwards um, about the last couple of years and how difficult it's been and also the 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 experience of giving up the test captaincy and, and you know even if you're not enjoying it that is a hard mm. thing to do and it's obviously taken its toll and he talked about the fact that he was starting to take it home with him as well and, and, and that wasn't sustainable. Uh, and it was just so nice to be able to just watch him bat and know that even if it doesn't come off, he's not going to be the one in the firing line afterwards facing the questions. He's not going to be the one talking about the structure of the county championship <laughs> or racism allegations mm. or anything else that, or COVID, anything else. That is not his job anymore. Um, whether hopefully 
Ben Stokes can handle that kind of stuff. Or hopefully he won't have to handle that kind of stuff. <laughs> Root has been desperately unlucky in what, what he was faced with mm. in his captaincy tenure. But Root can just bat and bat and hopefully he does it for years and years and years. And there's no re- reason why he shouldn't. He's clearly very fit, doesn't get injured very often. I could see 50 over cricket falling away in the not too distant future. T20 doesn't seem like it's happening for him, even though he's obviously keen to play more of it. So just let him bat and bat. You're, you're right to point out the, the love he got from the crowd when he reached three figures. It almost reminds me of the reaction to Cook's last 100, where it's like an all, almost awkwardly long standing yeah. of age. You're like, all right, let's, go, let's get on with it now. He was so good after Stokes got out. I think it was something like 81 of 81 after Stokes' dismissal. You, Tim, what's, what's changed with Root in the last 18 months? I mean, he's always been brilliant, but at his first peak in 2014, 2015... He wasn't actually a relentless 100 maker. He just basically always got to 50. And he had a couple of years where things, for his, by his standards, he struggled a little bit, 2019, 2020. And as I said, yeah, 900 in 18 months, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, no, it is absurd. I think he's, yeah, he seems to have found a way, um, I think he, to kind of maintain that intensity of his innings. I know he did a lot of fitness work in, in lockdown, which he's attributed to sort of helping his concentration because if you're, yeah, if you're not finding the kind of physical aspect of batting long so hard, that actually makes the mental aspect easier as well. Um, I think there was some technical tweaks against spin, obviously not so important in this test at all, um, which have, which helped him in, during that amazing run um, in Indian Sri Lanka at the start, start of last year. But I think he's just... And actually, he's, he found a way to kind of compartmentalise the job of captaincy and batting, even when the captaincy bit was not going, going well at all. Um, and so maybe now it's a sense of and it's a sit with the batting and that actually makes it seem like wherever else is kind of uh, finding playing test cricket absolutely exhausting for him actually it's he remembers it being a lot more tiring than it is, is now so it feels like kind of comparatively easy he's almost got a, a work-life balance now which you don't normally <laughs> yeah, say about being a cricketer absolutely I mean, it's exactly like it Alistair Cook said something on the BBC something about, about like how a route will go miles past his record and Cook was saying for him, when he was 33, he found scoring test runs so, so difficult. So mental energy was spent on every run he scored. And he said with Root, he was very careful, he said, it's not easy for Root, but it is much easier than it was for him. But he's got a lot more get, shots yeah, to start with. Helps, I mean, that, that makes helps. it a lot easier. I, I thought watching him over the last two days, it was, I think so few batsmen have mastered batting in English conditions like Root has with a slightly lower bounce, slower pace. The ease at which he rotates the strike, he is so confident with the six or seven shots that he uses a lot that he just looks so in control. And you can actually see, I think, why he also struggles a little bit in Australia, that some of the shots he's so reliant on here when the ball bounces are, yeah. are just more risky. Um, it's quite outside Exactly, exactly. Joe, you touched on it earlier, but Jack Leach, so desperate, unlucky with injury. Um, he's not played a home test in nearly three years and then his first one back to pick up a pretty nasty looking injury. And to be honest, touch wood, I was kind of glad it's only, in inverted commas, a concussion. Um, but got a feel for the bloke. Yeah, I was actually, I was, I was in the press box at Laws and I, I wasn't watching the telly and I didn't have an earphone in. So I was just watching the, and it was the far end mm. from me. And I didn't know initially who the player was. I saw a player go down and thought that looks nasty. And I was like, who's that? It's, it's just going to be Jack Leach, isn't it? And sure enough, mm. it's Jack Leach. And, and it's just the latest chapter in a really sorry story for him uh and you know we, we've debated a lot on this podcast as everyone has whether Leach should be the spinner for England or not but to an extent that's not really the point he's, he's just not really had a chance to 
do himself justice over a long period of time. His, his record is, is perfectly reasonable, but um, I just really, really feel for him. And I don't know what they're going to do next test. I think he, w- he will have, in theory, he'll have seen his seen through his concussion period. So he's allowed to start training again on Thursday, so the day before the test match. It's okay. going to be tight. It'll be it's tight. going to be tight. It's one of those ones that, however, whichever call, you, either you feel desperately sorry for Parkinson, <laughs> who finally gets his chance and then is immediately dropped, or you feel sorry for Leach, mm. who uh, would have been dropped without even doing anything wrong. I wonder when you look at that tail whether Leach, you know, he might get picked for his batting, which mm. is a slightly, a slightly bit, odd well, thing to say. But Matt Parkinson hit arguably the shot of the test match, that on drive down the ground. Um, obviously, a big moment, um, not just for Parkinson, but the podcast, Matt Parkinson making his test oh, debut. huge. And, and in, in such bizarre circumstances as well. like getting given, a, the debut for Potts and Parkinson in one test match. It must week. have been an, an emotional, week. Yeah, emotional like, week Yeah, a proud dad. Um, yeah, Tim, how did, you, how did you feel Parkinson went on debut? Obviously, yeah, very strange circumstances, coming up, driving up late. It was almost a club cricket vibe to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then bowling on a pitch. It wasn't offering much turn. You know, people can debate a lot about various attributes about Parkinson, but we know he turns it and he didn't actually get that much turn, particularly on day two. No, I mean, if you're going to pick a place to make your test debut, he's, I think he's been on 15 England, uh, he's been on tour for five England tours and 15 England test matches. And he would have picked probably a dozen of those to make his test debut over the conditions he got at Lords, especially, you know, oh yeah, day two wicket at Lords. Yeah. Really far from ideal. I think he... Probably's bowling at the wrong end as well. Yeah, he's bowling at the wrong end. But the reason was actually England said this, the uh, seamers were the main threat, which is, yeah, maybe not ideal, but probably also not an unfair judgment given the way the test panned out. Um, it's one of those things, obviously, people have seen a lot of clips of him on YouTube, but this is kind of real life. It's a bit more a bit more complicated than that. I think he, yeah, I mean, his, his speed, which is nothing new, I think, it was notable, you know, a lot of kind of ex-players watching, you know, they are a bit worried. That, is he a bit going to be a bit too slow for, for test cricket? But again, this is probably not the right test to to judge that. I think he could do with a better googly um, as well. But I mean, he's he's young. He's what he's a 25 year old leg spinner. This is a very, very difficult thing to master. Um, I think you would have to say at the moment, Adol Rashid, if he were available for test cricket, would probably be a more complete option as, as a leg spinner um, and we know that McCullum has sort of intimated he might be keen to try and get Rashid back into the fold it's only for some matches um, but I did think it was very good that Stokes brought Parkinson on to, to bowl at Tim Sally at, at the end and obviously getting his first test wicket that was a nice aspect and of course England have really struggled often bowling at the tail so there is a there is a world where if Ben Stokes is able to bowl as he seems to be at, at the moment you can have a, a leg spinner there predominantly to kind of target target the tail and then come into the game more generally in the, the, sec- the second innings thought Stokes captained him well uh, I think it was a good thing to do from the team perspective but it was a good thing to do from a kind of personal perspective with Parkinson as well it's great the reaction of the squad uh, the team when he took that wicket was really like a really lovely moment as well um, but I think it's always when you're when you're weighing up a spinner's performance I think it's always worth looking at the spinner on the other team and in this case Patel bowled two overs in the game, uh, one of which went a long way to deciding the match when Stokes went after him. Um, so, you look, look, I mean, Williamson's an astute skipper. He decided to bowl his spinner for two overs and they bowled quite a lot of overs against England in the end. So this is not the pitch to judge Parkinson on, especially when he's only bowled, what, 13 overs or so. The The pace of his bowling is an argument that's going to carry on and carry on and carry on. But Similar conversations were had around Adil Rashid as well when he was coming through. And the only way you learn if you're bowling the right pace for test cricket is to actually bowl in it. I mean, 
there is an argument to say that you, you don't necessarily bowl exactly the same way in county cricket as you do in test cricket. There are different demands. You're playing different qualities of players, different pitches. So if they think Parkinson's got enough uh, natural talent, which it seems undeniable that he's got that, then he deserves the opportunity to, to figure out the rest of it whilst actually doing it. Um, and, you know, Lords was not the pitch to do that, but I'm glad he got a taste of it. And um, hopefully we'll see him again this summer. He is only 25 and over a, a few years now has, has kind of shown he's he's the best young spinner that England have. Um, and kind of regardless of what you think in the Leach versus Parkinson debate, Parkinson, all being well, should be playing a reasonably important part of England's plans, not just in test cricket, to be honest, in, in, in all, all formats over the next few years. There aren't that many standout young spinners in white ball cricket. Parkinson is still probably the most exciting white ball young spinner. Um, and in test cricket, England go to Asia this year and he's, he is the number two spinner at the moment. They're also very different spinners and you know neither of them are kind of established test bowlers clearly, but that should be something that is a positive for England. Mm. We don't have to say you're number one, you're number two. You look at the pitch, potentially you look at your batting order. There are loads of factors which mean we, we England should have two spinners to pick from. It shouldn't just be that's your spinner and he just bowls and bowls and bowls where everybody's going. Mm. Um so it would be nice if the two could kind of develop alongside each other, particularly, as you say, with the challenge of Pakistan around the corner. Although it seems they're quite keen to get Mo and Ali back for that mm. one. But that's a different story. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, did New Zealand get it wrong with the team picking Ajaz Patel, who only bowled those two overs when you had Neil Wagner? He's got hundreds of test wickets sitting on the bench. Yeah, New Zealand clearly made two big tactical errors in this game. The first was was picking Patel. And the second, which was at least as big an error, was then... Not, not, not bowling him <laughs> more, more than two overs. Um, you know when, uh, yeah, on the on the third evening when when Folks and Root were together, there was a and, and Folks especially was looking like he was he was not very very proactive. So that could have been a chance for Tell to kind of get in the game, bowl a couple of maidens. And actually, one of the big uh, kind of subplots of, of the second innings was kind of the the race for the, the second you ball can win, win there before and actually Patel to folks could have been a good option to to get some dot balls but I think Kevin clearly doesn't particularly particularly trust him in which case why did he pick him and actually you talk about a kind of option on on flat wickets you know and this this pitch did really change sort of as the ball got older actually a very good option as we've seen time and again is, is Neil Neil Wagner obviously he, he wasn't picked so um given what happened and through not a huge amount of Patel's own fault I'd be pretty amazed if he was selected again at, at Trent Bridge. Um, I think Wagner will probably come in and there's also a case for Matt Henry. I mean, he's been playing the match in two of his last three test matches, including one in England last year at, at Edgbaston. Um, and he's, he's a useful batsman as well. He could possibly come in. I mean, Tim Sally actually probably, all the talk about Trent Bolt, I actually thought Tim Sally looked probably notably more, more tired than Bolt did. The Kiwi teams looked very tired, didn't they, on Saturday evening when yeah. that, that was when England really, you know, they did it brilliantly on Sunday, but that was really when they won the game that, that third evening. Um, I did wonder why Darren Mitchell didn't get more of a, a bowl as well. Agreed, yeah. I know, he, you know, you don't expect him to take wickets. He's not necessarily a dangerous bowler, but you wouldn't have thought he'd go for too many runs either. Um, yeah, I, th I think Williamson uncharacteristically made a few missteps there which I, would, I don't know it cost them the game but it's, it certainly helped England win the game weirdly given that New Zealand lost the test match do you think that the form of Blundell and Mitchell could be quite significant for the rest of the series on paper five and six they're two of the least established people in that uh, top seven and them actually scoring runs you kind of like the first day collapse was an aberration and that doesn't happen New Zealand probably win the test match very comfortably 
Yeah, I, I have to say, looking at that New Zealand side on the morning of day one, like, you know, Mitchell's not on test number five. Bundle's not really a test number six, to be honest. They're both probably at least a place too high. Uh, and then, <laughs> then they batted absolutely brilliantly on the, on the Friday afternoon. I mean, England barely had a chance for well, across pretty much two <laughs> sessions. Um, and at that point, it felt like not a new low. That's, that's, it wasn't quite that low. <laughs> Another low. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think that is that's an interesting dynamic now that, that that weakness now doesn't appear to be to be quite so. I mean, you look at Mitchell and Blundell's records, first class records, and and there's not a suggestion that they would do this consistently. I know they've both played kind of key knocks at different times, but um, the way they batted was just that, that they they could absolutely do that again in the series. It, they were, they weren't streaky innings and whatever. They were just very very good Test match knocks. Um, so that will give England, uh, New Zealand sorry, quite a lot of heart. Um, and I don't think that New Zealand top order is going to be quite as flaky, um, certainly as they were on that first morning. Um, and, well, they'd had a shocker against the Select 11 as well. There had been form, as in bad form, yeah. for what, what happened there. Um, it shouldn't have come as a, a huge surprise, I guess. Tim, you've got a new book out. Crickonomics that you've co-authored. What is the book about? And we're going to show the cover to the YouTube audience. Yeah, so the book is Crickonomics: The Anatomy of Modern Cricket. It's out, it's out now, and it was co-authored with Stefan Shemansky, who uh, was also the author of, of Sockonomics. So it's in a fairly similar vein. Greg Barkley, the uh, chair of the ICC, this week gave an interesting uh, and reasonably controversial interview, I guess, with TMS during the Test match. He said that women's Test cricket will not really be part of the landscape moving forward to any real extent but he also basically warned fans that there's going to be less test cricket and there's going to be more white ball cricket in international cricket and your book touches on things about around the economics of cricket specifically looking over the last 20 or so years um, but you you talk a lot about why there are fewer tests there are already fewer test matches happening Barkley is has given a warning to something that's already happening. Yeah, so one of the interesting things, yeah, people talk about, there is always kind of couch in these kind of warning terms, there will be fewer tests in the future. So we actually said, okay, what's actually happened? What's been the trend this century? And actually there's been quite a, a clear downward trend already in the amount of test cricket being played, which, which we actually weren't that aware of. And as interesting, so from 2001 to 2004, there was an average of 50, 51 tests a year um, in the last four-year cycle before COVID, so 16 to 19, there was an average of 45 a year. This is these are two similar periods, really. They both have a, a World Cup 50 over World Cup in them. Um, so yeah, that's that's a kind of notable decrease. So that the total number has gone down by 23 over a, a four-year period. So something is happening here, and clearly it's the trends that Barkley describing already well underway. So we see the proliferation of T20 leagues ar around the world, um, and we see huge really commercial pressures on test cricket and the best example of this is new zealand obviously they won the world test championship last year and had a, had a very good era in test cricket probably back to 2013 or so um and they still only only play four home test matches a year and the reason is they can't afford to pay to pay more basically so um in new zealand uh when they play a home test match they lose in the region of 400,000 500,000 pounds sterling um which obviously <laughs> for a board you you can't really afford to to keep on doing that that more and more so the model of the model for test cricket at the moment is outside of the big three and in some cases really a, um almost only almost england matches when it's uh playing less attractive opponents um 
the test cricket relies on being subsidized by by the shorter formats and that's the kind of model that's built into cricket um and basically if we see more bilateral t20 leagues that that hurts this cricket in two ways the first is obviously the schedule there's there's less gaps um there's less, there's fewer gaps in the schedule to schedule test matches and um, the second is that if boards are actually um not scheduling as much other other cricket so you know t20 and t20s and odis that means they'll have actually less cash to then subsidize the home test matches that they they do pay so why do test matches cost so much money for boards like new zealand yeah it's a very fundamental but important question i it's it's really the the, the staging costs it's you know if you look at new zealand well if, say if west indies are coming they have to pay for west indies to fly kind of more than all, all the way around the world um then the kind of requirements on hotels and and things like that and then internal travel you don't have to pay for things like 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 the umpires the cost of drs and things like that um and then the sort of security around the ground and stuff um tv deals not claw back a significant portion of this or not not really not not, not anywhere near enough um so these yeah these these are net costs i should say so these are not so this is after after the the money that they, they do claw back from tv it's obviously obviously with one of the reasons people a few years ago, it's not really now, we're talking about four-day test matches is that with five-day test matches, obviously you have to pay everybody, the security staff and everybody for, for five days. You have to bank up happen even when it, it happens. Uh, it would, that doesn't happen. So you can have your... So that the sunk costs are, are pretty high. Um, and yeah, you're kind of left in this yeah position where it, it the product is, is pretty expensive to, to stage. Um, and I would argue one of the, the big sort of failings of world cricket and the icc has been the failure to develop a really coherent and simple simple broadcasting model really kind of netflix for cricket i mean icc tv has sort of trying to do this a little bit but it's kind of picking up the cricket around the edges but there should be a way like in um, major league baseball you can buy an mlb pass and kind of watch watch games on your phone and stuff they're very, very simple you know all out of market games which are kind of non-home matches so it should be in england that we're able to pay a subscription every month and we can watch test cricket from all the way around the world you know often there's actually matches that people would want to watch and actually don't know how to watch. A great example of this was when Bangladesh beat Australia in 2017 for the first time. I'm sure lots of English fans would love to tune in for the end of that. <laughs> and it was, uh, I think as far as I went, it was impossible to find or was it on some very obscure yeah. channel which was hidden away um, and, and people didn't have a subscription. So there's things like that where you know the, the most basic marketing is you, you cater to people's demands and actually at the moment... Um, test cricket has lots of problems but one of the simple things it's not doing right it's not catered to people's demand so there's untapped there's, there's untapped demand mm. which um, is, is not being catered for because cricket's administrators haven't been able to get this sort of system together and then I suppose my my dream utopian solution would be for the which, which is never going to happen sadly would be for the ICC to run the World Test Championship as if it's an ICC event like the, the World Cup um, and then to pull the TV rights and, and then you can um, then be Big three revenue will effectively subsidise other test cricket. Yeah, exactly. But also, if you talk to a broadcaster, broadcasters, if you're going to be like the test cricket station, you want to, you want to kind of. It's actually better to do everything in a way. Like it's, it's when so many of these test series are sold very much at, you know, the eleventh hour. Balls like Sri Lanka are very bad about this. Um, and then, and then, TV companies haven't got a time to to sort of to plan and to schedule and to do it right. And they also, it's just kind of randomly popped on. It's not. It's, they haven't got a chance to build a narrative around it and then i mean one of the big 
the Test Championship is obviously very imperfect, but one of the, the big things it, it does do is it means that that's kind of skin in the games for, fa- for for fans of teams who aren't playing in a particular match. So you see, you know, you know, New Zealand at the end of, of the last championship cycle, they they needed results to go that to go their way in order to to get into the final themselves. So they actually cared about you know, say Australia South Africa actually, which in the end was was cancelled. But but that actually that affected whether New Zealand got to the final. So that sort of thing is really good. We see that in, in Premier League football, whatever, where that gives fans a reason to watch those other matches. Um, but I think. The best way to do that would be a that this this sort of this pooling of, of rights. Certainly, there was talk of pooling all overseas rights, which is which is a more like a more logical way, way of doing it. Um, so you'd buy a package to buy, to basically watch all cricket not involving say in England, you could buy a package to watch all cricket not involving England. Um, that that sort of thing. And and the second thing is to make the World Test Championship actually a proper league, and so you have everyone play the same number of, of matches. And again, that to happen, that needs subsidy from from the pooling of rights mm. otherwise countries like New Zealand just can't afford to play more um, but then if you have a, a league table where everyone's playing 12 matches over the cycle um, and then you have you can literally just have three points for a win one point for a draw in each game mm. and suddenly it's a very it's a very logical and you can just explain it to your mate in the pub and the moment it's just the percentage of points is a bit of a bit of a mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I really liked about the book is how you're describing how the landscape of cricket has has recently changed. And it's almost like when you're within something and you and you're watching it every day, you don't notice something changing as much. But here, you do take a step back. And also, I think potentially that in the UK we have a, a slightly warped view of the health of cricket because Test cricket is still UK. quite popular here. People, you know, I know there are a few empty seats at Lords, but compared to the rest of the world it's still it's still extremely popular i mean there's a line here about you know the the, the influence of the ipl the broad trajectory of cricket's journey is unmistakable the question is how much space is left for the international game i mean it's you you get into the, the, the financial realities behind a lot of decisions that are quite unpopular like there being less test cricket but also like the hundred right you explained that the the ecb don't make as much money where the australia and india don't come there are two summers out of four where that doesn't happen and they want to have sustainable income that they can rely on each year so that that in itself is quite interesting and shows the direction the way the game's going yeah absolutely we see something similar in pakistan as well so when um when various countries including england england last year have kind of gone back on their agreements to tour pakistan um to people in the in the the pcb the the pakistan cricket board this has been like evidence of why the pakistan super league is so important like we need to be able to have cricket that we can rely on so we're not at the whims of kind of, of flaky tourists. And, and and this is actually, a this is one of the things that's sort of accelerating the rise of club cricket is that the relations between many countries are, are not great. They can't really trust each other. Obviously, an extreme example is India don't play Pakistan, but even in much smaller examples like, you know, England not going to Pakistan and stuff, this is a, a, a reoccurring problem. And if you can't trust trust another country to be good, make good on their obligation to you, then you need to find a way to, to generate to generate money that's not dependent on them. And yeah, so the idea of one of the central ideas of the 100 is the ECB want a product they can rely on year after year. So they, they then sort of test cricket is a nice extra, but it's it's not the sort of beating heart of, of the product. Um, and that's puts test cricket in a bit of a bind. I wanted to ask you, Tim, because I know, I know you love test cricket. I know you also love T20 cricket. You wrote the book on yeah. T20 cricket. Um but having you can love both, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, but more let's, let's avoid cricket's culture wars. Yeah. But no, I get no. I guess more that now having done um, cricketomics, how do you feel about the overall health of the game? Does it leave you depressed, or do you just look at it from a more kind of realist point of view? This is this is just the nature of what's what's happening. 
Um, so one of the the really really big positive things that so often we forget about is that if you're like a cricketer from outside the you know the big five or six nations, it's actually kind of never been a, a better time because you have a pathway to earn what what you're worth. And you know, we've seen Sandeep Namachane play from Nepal playing the IPL, which is you know unimaginable by a generation ago. So th- these sorts of things are, are really really positive developments. Um, I think is that there's a democratization of cricket that is underway and is caused by the rise of T20 leagues, um, which which is brilliant. It's, it's similar to what we're seeing in, in football, where it doesn't matter you know what country you're from. If you're good enough, you'll be able to play in, in Champions League or whatever. So that's a really really positive development. Um, there are obviously a lot of of challenges um, along the way as well. Um, I don't yeah, so I don't think like Test cricket has to die, but I think it it needs good administration more than ever. And cricket doesn't have a huge amount of that, but I think I mean the game as a whole. There's a huge amount of, ex, you know, ex, huge. It, sorry, the, the game as a whole. There's a huge amount of possibilities. I think it's actually great that there's three different formats, and you can you can love them all. You can have your preferred one. That's that's fine. I think the the landscape of cricket, cricket is you know around the world is more relevant and more popular really than it's ever been before. So as much as we can say oh things were better, they probably really weren't. Mm. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the book touches on loads of stuff that we've we've not mentioned. We won't have time to mention cricket's concussion crisis. There's uh, stuff on why private schools in England are good at producing batsmen but not bowlers. Um, how the Barmy Army are keeping Test cricket alive from their sofas. Uh, how Afghanistan is bringing cricket to Germany. Um, did the cold cost India a Test series victory in England? There's absolutely loads. So I would recommend any cricket fans to go and get it. Um, Tim, where where can people buy the book? Uh, yeah, it, they can buy it in all all good bookshops. So that's probably better. Um, that that is the measure of a good bookshop. Yeah, it, it, it is a measure of a good good bookshop. <laughs> um, normally, people give a plug to Amazon, but I don't think Amazon need plugs. So um, <laughs> if, if you could buy your bookshop, that's even better. Is this, this yeah. is your third book, right? Uh, yeah. And how old are you? Uh, Thirty-one. But they're all half, so it's one and a half. Okay, fair enough. All right, well, that makes me feel a bit better about myself. Okay, good. (laughs) Well, awesome, Tim. Brilliant having you on. Uh, Joe, cheers for your time. This has been the Wizen Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be back later in the week. Sports Social Podcast Network.